I'm at a point now at the beginning of a design career, and it is a very terrifying place because I constantly compare this neophyte version of a career with what I most recently remember as a dancer, which was the peak of my career. And that's not a very fair comparison. Two years down one road compared to 20 years down another. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. For 20 years, Charlie Hodges heeded his creative calling to dance at the highest level, with roles in acclaimed Broadway productions and as part of Twyla Tharp's legendary repertory company. His trek to the peak of that profession was grueling, to say the least. Charlie endured waves of intensely personal rejection, oftentimes targeting his body type and appearance. But he ultimately prevailed thanks to his abundance of talent, perseverance, and, as he suggests, his threshold for pain. Most people would be more than satisfied with those achievements, but for Charlie, that was simply Act One. He then pivoted, or more accurately, pirouetted, toward a completely new creative metier, product design. Drawing on his lifelong passion for the playful engagement of objects and bodies in space, he enrolled in Art Center's product design program. His natural creative abilities and propensity for hard work continued to serve him well. During an Art Center design storm for a major toy company, Charlie developed Urbanette, a sustainable dollhouse for which he received a prestigious IDSA award. While at Art Center, he delivered a remarkably vulnerable and wise TEDx talk on the resilience he acquired pursuing a career in dance. And finally, true to his commitment to excellence, Charlie graduated from Art Center as the summer 2018 valedictorian. During our conversation, we retraced Charlie's illustrious dance career, his lifelong belief in the power of persistence, and his newfound passion for designing toys with the potential to influence change for generations to come. So, Charlie, I want to begin by uh, exploring a little bit about who you were as a creative kid. Do you remember or can you describe for us your own sense of um, your, your creativity, the creative spirit that you had when you began to dance? When I look back or when I think about what dance has been for me, it's kind of been the, the space I've been the most creative for the longest duration. And I always thought of the studio as church, the place, you know, you, you'd always be forgiven for your sins, no matter what was happening in life, no matter how ashamed you were because of some bad choice you made or whatever it was that was disappointing or frustrating, a fight I might have with my brother or anything, the studio was the safest place for me to just cope with, process, understand. I don't know that it was a creative outlet as much as I was taking from that environment what I needed to be able to settle and feel safe. Was it compensatory, do you think, or was it nourishing, or was it both? I think so, there's this really incredible book called um, The Velvet Rage, and it's about growing up gay in a straight male society, kind of the patriarchal, straight, white, male gaze concept. And in it, the author kind of describes how... A kid who knows he is gay intuitively feels that they're other, they're out of place, there's something wrong. And 
sometimes that behavior manifests itself in a need to feel like I have something to offer. And the behavioral pattern, how it matches, at least in my case, was that dance came into my life at a time when I noticed that I was a little bit different. And for fear of being rejected or kicked out or lost, I needed to up the ante to be able to provide a sense of merit. Like... I need to be here because you'll be without something that you care about. And so I do think starting dance in the beginning, as much as it was a physical outlet, underneath that was this recognition or like a survival instinct in this little boy that said, this is how you can stay in the tribe long enough to find your way. I wonder if we ought to pause for a moment and if I could just ask you to give the listeners the headlines, the contours of your career as a dancer. started dancing when I was 10 and a half, 11 in Carson City, Nevada at a dance studio that was a renovated laundromat, I believe. The teacher was a former cheerleader and the other teacher was um, worked in the Moulin Rouge. So with all respect, I learned how to twirl my nipple pasties before I learned uh, plies and tendus. Always a good <laughs> skill. <laughs> and uh, through that, um, a best friend of mine, Kate, who was going away to boarding school for performing arts, was leaving and I felt like I couldn't live without her. My mom overheard this conversation and to her credit, our family does not have the financial resources or the history of doing something like this, but she said, why not? And she found a way to get me to a performing arts high school. This was Walnut Hill? Yep, in Massachusetts. And I was there for two years. I tried to quit halfway through, but uh, it didn't work out. Then I ended up getting a job sight unseen with the Sacramento Ballet. Moved to Sacramento, I was there for four years, worked up to a principal position. This is before going to college, by the way. Um, So now I'm 22. And at that time, Twyla Tharp, a choreographer from New York, had her touring company had passed through Sacramento on performances. I saw the show. It was the first time that I stayed awake for an entire dance concert. Thought that says something. So I spoke to the people afterwards and on a whim sent in a video. She called on Thanksgiving Day, said, if you want to be, if you're ever in New York, let me know and we'll set up an audition. And I said, if you'd like me to come to New York, I'll buy a plane ticket and I'll meet you there. So I did. And on January 2nd of that year, um, she offered me a job after the audition. Moved to New York the following year and spent 10 years working as her assistant. We did her touring work, um, small, like creating new pieces, restaging old work from her arsenal. I would stage her work on companies around the world. Um, through that process, I was part of the national tour of the Broadway musical Moving Out with Billy Joel, and then later did both of the other two Broadway musicals that she put together with Bob Dylan's music and then later Frank Sinatra. Um, and then five, six, six years ago, I met Benjamin Miller. PA, well, with whom I started LA Dance Project, a company here in Los Angeles, and that brought me out here. Did that for four years before an injury kind of necessitated future planning, and um, backing down wasn't an option. I need to make use of whatever I have, and I sat there thinking I have a lot of talent for moving a body in space. Can I leverage that knowledge into moving the space around a body? Architecture was the first thought, but it wasn't for me. Product design felt like a smaller version, a more accelerated, condensed version of architecture. The 
the reflections you just offered about bodies in space is a good transition for a lot of questions about dance that I'm really curious about. I'm interested in how a dancer makes with the body and maybe what the body knows or what one can listen to in the body and understand that we discover in the actual creation of the dance of the of movement in space. What makes my relationship with dance, what I've noticed, if I take an, like an outside point of view, I never based my knowledge or what I... My approach in the studio on emotion, as much as it was emotional in the outcome, mine was always very analytical. And so I was constantly aware of where is the focus of the audience. If it's a theater and around, then I need to make sure that everybody in 360-degree panorama of my body in one moment can interpret the negative space around my body or the contour of my profile in a way that satisfies whatever the objective is. I think I always really loved in dance, I got to be the sculpture and the sculptor. And I don't know that you ever get to do both. I talk a lot about this at Art Center, as you may know, that the relationship with skill and artistic freedom and expression is a really valuable and rich one. I'm wondering if that resonates with you in terms of what the supreme discipline and skill and ability that you developed and worked on and the kind of freedom that I see when I get to watch those little snippets of you moving. I think... At the root of everything is honesty. I had so many injuries in my career, and they came out of nowhere, and they were so horrible that I would be out of dancing for four months at a time. Broken bones, torn ligaments, right at critical junctures, right before the opening night of a really long run, so I'd miss everything. And the the pressure then of, it's going to happen again, it's just a matter of when, always made me walk into a performance saying, this could be the last time you do it. So don't do it for them, don't do it for... The only reason you're here is because this is the stuff that you love to do and go do it for that. And I think I was always very transparent about the short term with myself. I was very honest about what a blessing every moment was. And I couldn't help myself but go out there and just be filled with such gratitude. And I imagine when you feel that sort of settled, like you're okay with the any outcome, your body language stands more a little erect, so your eyes are a little brighter. You make eye contact that's neither confrontational or shy, but it's just inviting. It's like, let's have a conversation. Let's talk about stuff today. I'm going to dance. I like you to watch. Let's have a good time. And it, I think that as an expression is what an audience member picks up and says, I don't know what it is, but I trust you. I think you're being honest with me. I don't need to second guess anything. I can just go right to it and enjoy myself because they're at ease. All that time you spent, all the skill that you developed, was that a way toward finding the honesty that was at the root of your performance? And therefore, I'm making that connection between skill and freedom. It seems inevitable. There is this wonderful quote said by the grandmother of three generations of female circus performers and the lesson was just dive in and see what your natural talent and then your nurtured talent can can get you 
uh, with discipline, that's what you're bringing to the table. That's your your nurtured skill. Your skill, in my mind, is natural. That's what you're born with. Your and talent. You, yeah, you put these two things together, and you drive that as long as that fuel tank takes you, and you hope it gets you past the next border to the next station to fill up and keep generating more and more and more and more. And I think of another uh, quote, if you want to, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. And I think along the way where your natural talent starts to peter out and it's now all up to the nurtured side and that discipline, if you want to get through to the next station, you'll find a way to keep going forward. And if you're not interested, you'll find an excuse to back out. And you hope, I think for anybody, I would hope for anybody, that before too long you can get yourself into an environment where you expect or rely on your discipline to keep you going forward because what's on the other side of that hill is a really awesome, valuable, rewarding experience. Um, I think sometimes, too, we think that there's only one way to get that. I get this a lot, that we have one career. But I, I, I think that there's a broader view of being alive that doesn't say I'm only a dancer. But I could be, I could be an A plus student, if you will, as a brother, and I could be an A plus boyfriend or husband. I could be an A plus professional. Like, there's so many ways that you can really, like, seize what this life has to offer. And I would rather that than think that you're only ever one and that's it, it's fixed. So when that dies, you're left with just filler until it's over. That just sounds very daunting to me or something. Another question I had for you along those same lines is the spontaneity of live performance, that you can discipline yourself, you can be choreograph, you can do all manner of preparation, but there's something about live performance where something, even the smallest thing, is going to be a little bit different. Well, that's a little of the adrenaline. That's the exciting part where no matter how prepared or planned you are, there's something that'll always knock you off guard. You train to figure out how to address that moment, not to avoid it. You'll never be able to avoid that moment. So life is about preparing for the disruptions. Not only avoiding them, even welcoming them because they bring... And I think that goes back to honesty. If you're really honest with yourself, you'll recognize that there is no perfect or there is no anticipated, like this outcome is, is so unknown you might not even make it to that point. Um, and maybe this is the optimist in me. I like to think of it as like a, a possibilist because optimism kind of suggests a little bit of blinded kind of hope or faith. But I think often we only look at the stuff like the worst case scenario. And I think that stops us from participating or thinking. And I, know, I, like, I like the moment of not knowing how it's going to turn out. So you've been a big target in the dance world, and it's been a s- sad look at uh, narrowness of defining bodies and kind of almost a hegemony in the dance world about what bodies need to look like and what they need to be, and a shaming, really, of bodies that don't conform to a certain way of thinking or a certain kind of expectation. And I think there's so much there that, again, I've heard you reflect on with such wisdom. My, my instinct is to... Cr- I want to correct. So I don't blame the dance world for shaming. I think that I will take the responsibility to say that my interpretation of the the information that I was getting was based on low self-esteem. So if someone says you're really short and stocky, but you move so big and you're flexible, I heard 
you're an unattractive human. If I had a higher self-esteem, it wouldn't have crossed my mind that there was a problem there. What I would have heard instead was, you're an oxymoron. What's so exciting about you is that someone so little can take up so much space. But was that what they were saying? Yeah, I, well, again, yeah, I, it's, I, I, it's I'll legitimate. Say it, there, there's, there's some some less than generous intention there. I suppose. But again, I think we get to choose the path we lead. And maybe this, maybe now I'm refuting myself and it's a very dishonest thing because I'm rewriting my own history to say what I would rather hear is that I am a conundrum to you because thinking that allows me to continue down a path that I want to go down. And if I allow, if I think of it or define it differently, then that's going to become my reason. Like I'm allowing a barrier to exist. And in my mind, every choice I make is constantly about removing a barrier. I don't want you to decide for me what I get to do in my life. Mm. I will be responsible for it. If it doesn't work out, it's my fault. And I'd never want to be in a position where I can blame somebody else for my lack of opportunity, because that to me is victimizing myself. And I I don't have anything to do with that. And, and I applaud that, and I am compelled by it. And it's almost as if, uh, you know, it's the kind of stoic uh, philosophical position of it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to it and how we deal with it. Very much so, and I'm very stubborn about that. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. I wouldn't discount um, the negativity no. and the narrowness that you had to experience. But I think that negativity or narrowness can be seen as a type of um, just an a miseducation. And so I see then an opportunity. Oh, cool. So you think there's a problem with the short, fat, bald dancer. Let me let me correct the record. Let me show you that there is an option where this is okay or it works out. You could never just sit and say, people were mean to me. Very quickly, it was, well, what are you going to do about it? And there was always this expectation that there was something you could do about it. And so people are mean to me. They have, an, a, they have a judgment or they're nasty. And one thing I could do about it is to say, well, you're ugly too, and then walk away. The outcome of that is that it's done. What I'm going to do about this is I'm going to prove you wrong. You've just told me that this isn't possible. I'm going to prove you wrong and hope that through a, a positive way, you'll realize that maybe there is a different option. And so if I did fall back, and I really didn't have a choice. So I, I can't take credit for any of the, I think, the successes, because I just, in my mind, it was like, okay, someone has just said, you're short and fat and you can't. And if I don't, then that proves them right. And they're allowed to continue thinking in a certain way that is a disenfranchisement. Or the only other option is to push forward, and that would be proving them wrong. This seems to be an echo of what you were saying earlier about the child who saw himself as a little bit different and found ways of countering, compensating, even nourishing. I think I am motivated by wanting to know what is true. And I don't know, you could tell me one thing and I could feel another thing. And now I have a, a question to resolve, which is true. Um, and I think the inevitable pursuit of whatever that truth is leads to more questions. And so it's a, it's been a, a flowing river <laughs> of opportunity to explore. There's always one more question to ask. Those qualifiers that say like, things are always this way. I hear the always, the never, everything.
everything you do, these statements, and just, I just don't believe that life is so fixed or determined. But what you've grown to understand in terms of how you look at your own response, turn it into choice, try to understand the opportunity that is there, that seems to me, that was present at a very early age for you. When you talked about, you know, the studio as this sanctuary, is that what you used? It was like church, yeah. Or like church, yeah. And that you found a way to take some part of you that could have been um, a place of, of fear for you or external judgment or something, however, and, and made it your own and interpreted and found a way to find its creative opportunity and its honesty. But I would say part of that pursuit, right? So here I am in this particular vessel of a body, and in the beginning I'm trying to pursue a life in ballet, and that's not that wasn't an honest fit. I was trying to force something, and so there was probably more turmoil than necessary. Had at an earlier age, I realized that a contemporary dance world would be more likely to pick up what I was putting down. A lot of the struggle that happened through the course of my life in dance was just that. I think on the outside, you could look and say, here's this young kid who's trying to figure out how to say what he has to say. And the course of that journey took him from these different types of styles of dance and companies and cities and choreographers towards the end to kind of arrive at a, a statement of sorts. Okay, so let's turn to design. A dance career, it doesn't end exactly. I think you say you're still in the, you just change shoes. I yeah. believe that's your metaphor, right? Ray Eames. I didn't, she says I didn't quit painting, I just changed my palette. And my application is that I didn't quit dancing, I've just changed my shoes. Okay, so let's talk about your transition, Charlie's transition to design. How did that happen? I mean, obviously the, with the architecture work, there was some interest there, but why design? I think it goes into that concept of if you have an ability and an, a knowledge and you can from a third person point of view recognize that both of those things exist then I think you have a responsibility to follow through and as a dancer you know again really I'm such a analog I feel like a, a warrior for humanity right now I think technology is amazing what it's giving us how it's helping us how improved our lives are becoming but when I see an app that tells you that you should drink water, I get angry because a person should know what the feeling of thirst is. I feel like nature has given us so many abilities and we're outsourcing them one after the next. Walk up the stairs. You don't need an escalator. Lift the switch. You don't need an automatic light. These sensors like touch things and feel things and feel the weight or fulcrum. Like how great is it to like just feel leverage in a door and where the hinges and the handle and or temperature. It could be so cold in New York and the door handle is freezing. And you're like, yeah, that's why I'm cold. That's why I'm going inside. And I can picture some sort of a device that stops this little inconvenience. But you know, I, I want to celebrate the inconveniences. And I feel like we're losing that. We're losing an ability to communicate because I can just summarize an entire experience, an entire audition 
or job interview with one emoji. And to me, the terror in that is now I'm allowing somebody else to interpret what that emoji meant. So you're, I'm giving you the authority to put words into my mouth. And I don't know that everybody knows this. We're giving up all of our autonomy or control and creativity and effort and allowing our circumstances or people or jobs to define what that means for us. And I, I don't like the outcome of that. I think that's like a good horror movie. How are you addressing the situation as a designer then? I think that I'm trying to find ways to not rely on technology or apps to satisfy the things. I want to put work into it. Bring tactility back. You know, everything is so smooth and flat. Why can't we have a texture that goes with it? Or put a little effort into how you assemble it. Like, is it so bad to have to read an instruction and or to learn how to use a device? There has to be a medium between attention span, right? There's this, like, let's just get to the point as quickly as possible. No, I want you to have to process this a little bit. We're bringing it in. A lot of my stuff right now is just very tactile. So let's talk specifically. Maybe it would be um, it would be interesting to, to ground this in some of the specific projects. Urbanette would be one that I would like. Maybe if you could describe to the listeners what that is and then... And maybe we could explore how some of these principles that you're talking about mm-hmm. are relevant, which I think they are. This project is um, just kind of reimagining a dollhouse. And you look at a lot of dollhouses are large and heavy, so they're kind of, it's really a tool for a parent. Parent has to unbox it and then assemble it and set it up, but it's a toy for a kid. So the play doesn't actually start until after the parent has done a lot of work. So one of the first questions was, how can I get a kid engaged in the assembly or setup process? Can it be intuitive enough for a five-year-old to be able to start to manipulate? But through the course of that manipulation, can there be a sequence of steps? You know, part of child development is a learning sequence, and you can memorize three steps at a certain age. Now you can memorize a sequence of five steps. And then it's the recall to start thinking backwards. You know, the structure of trying to reverse engineer an event is a useful tool. So can you integrate that then into the toy? So it's not just, here's a room and now I have a doll to do things, but can I ritualize the process of setting up the space and allow that to become more thoughtful? And you infuse your work with um, really clear values, right, regarding sustainability and environmentally conscious ways of developing the, the, the product. Yeah. We're too, we have too many people on the planet and not enough resources to not take into account where a thing comes from and where it goes. And that just to me is, I don't think that you need to wear sustainability as a badge. I think it should just be integrated as a given. There has to be a way to just allow that to exist. Kind of like when we always talk about a woman in a position of authority. I want to get to the point where we don't have to talk about it as a standout, but it's it's not a th- we don't even notice it anymore. And I think in product design, at least in my world, sustainability has to be that kind of a thing. When things are not part of the dominant, we tend to mark them and name them. So a nurse is a nurse, but a male nurse is a very specific way of naming that yes. thing, right? That's what you're talking yes, about, yes. I think. That, you know, there can be a, a product that we develop where there can be a sustainable product. And it's probably a function of naming that thing because it is not necessarily as dominant as we would like to see it be. This, In this toy design, I'm trying to find a way to approach gender neutrality in a way that is as well a given. It's interesting because I was going to ask you, why, why the focus on toys? Kids learn through play what adults can't teach. 
And if we want to give our kids the opportunity to become the stewards of tomorrow, we need to provide them with the tools they need today. And to me, this is where I feel like I can make the biggest impact. Again, that goes back to the the feeling of responsibility that if you have an ability and an opinion, then you're responsible to follow through. And I have a very strong opinion about how life could be better. I don't think that a better quality of living is out of reach, but a lot of people believe that they need more money to do that or they need better circumstances. And to me, so much of it is just a point of view. It's in your mind. If people knew how brilliant, how powerful their thinking was, I don't think that we would have as much suffering. I think life would be smoother and more exciting and entertaining and safer and better. And so the way to start that, I think, is when they're kids. I can't change how a 60-year-old thinks about, for example, me being gay. That's kind of fixed. I've tried. It doesn't work. That's what it is. I can just live a good life and at least help them understand that I'm not a threat. And that's the best I can do. With kids, you can give them an opportunity to realize like a new balance of, of what matters and what doesn't. And I think through play, that's that's the best way to kind of practice that. What about the issue of the skill that you need to develop to be to be a really good designer? Can you relate that to your career as a dancer? I think um, pulling from uh, my pursuits in dance, I've learned that the most reliable trait is going to be discipline. And when you set up a way of thinking, behaving, working, doing, then when you are ready to give up because circumstances which you can't control are telling you it's over, I think that's when you turn on this autopilot of effort and you stick along that until you can start to like walk again. They're like your training wheels. Whenever anything starts to wobble, put out those or like little bumpers, it'll kind of write your course. But you should, even if you're crawling, you're making forward momentum. I'm at a point now at the beginning of a design career, and it is a very terrifying place because I constantly compare this neophyte version of a career with what I most recently remember as a dancer, which was the peak of my career. And that's not a very fair comparison. Two years down one road compared to 20 years down another. And so I spent half of my time trying to distance myself from that expectation to give room for this to grow. But then the other half of my time trying to overlap that situation because that's the fuel to get through. And it does get very confusing. And what interests me, and of course you've reflected on this already, but that those 20 years of dancing inform the design and the designer and who you are. So the specific discipline may be only two years or, or a shorter period of time. I will say dance is, because of my life in dance, I have an incredibly high pain threshold. And I, I, I think more than anything I've been given from that life is that I can endure a lot. And so if it's a 10-hour workday because of a deadline, I can do that without flinching. If it's just physical pain sitting at a desk for a very long time, I'll fight through the worst eye pain from a computer screen if it's you know, whatever it might be, the pain or discomfort of having to work through is so second nature anymore. I don't 
I don't. It doesn't. It's not a reason to stop. And as you said earlier, if if you have the tenacity and the perseverance to get to the other side, there is all kinds of opening that yeah. and yeah. discovery that can happen. And maybe too, I'm very benef- I'm very um, grateful. I'm very lucky and blessed. Um, choose any of those that I was able to. From my own point of view, I see this kid who should not have been the dancer he was, but by golly, he found some way to do that. And I look back at the career and the performances and the venues and the reviews and the the reputation, everything that came from it. It's like, wow, <laughs> he did that. That's cool. And so it's my like almost third person distance. I'm inspired by him because he proved to me that it's possible. So now the me today is looking at this next obstacle. I was like, no, don't ask if you can do it. Just ask how you do it. Charlie, I'm I'm curious to ask. Do you do you have a spiritual life? Um, it's very science based. What do you mean? I just believe in biology. I think we're here now, and then for me, when I die, I'm dead. It's not very romantic. I'd like to think that there's a small window. Okay, I don't know that I'm reincarnated. I'm not certain, and I don't necessarily believe in a, a long life after death. But I think there's a little window where I get to go into like a movie theater setting and I can just say or think a question like, you know, I I never lied to my friends. And then on the screen would be played every time that I lied. (laughs) And then every time that I didn't, that I told the truth in a moment when it would have been easier to lie. And so I could get for myself a very honest, truthful evaluation. And maybe this goes back to an earlier statement, this quest for just what is true. How can we be so certain? What is, I just want to know what the truth is, not covered by opinion and emotion and circumstance. So I could sit in that movie theater and finally at the very end be like, I get it. And that was the value of my life. And then I could just go off. That's that's the kind of the extent of it. There's something when I when I hear you when you reflect on what you've learned when you reflect on the pain you've had to go through. I, I certainly see you drawing from a great strength within, but I'm wondering if it's larger than that for you. I don't know why we need to lose the people we love in order to be able to say those people mattered. Why do I need to lose my ability to dance to be able to say I love to dance? We go through life thinking that the only way to understand the value of a thing or a person or an event is through its loss, its absolute destruction. And the bigger the destruction, obviously the more important thing, the moment, the person, the job. And I just, it drives me crazy that the only way people get to the point of feeling gratitude and seeing just like being present is through like such pain and devastation. I want to find a way, maybe it's through design, to help people understand that what you have is really great. You don't need to lose it to know its value or where it sits in this context. And in that respect, sometimes I worry that with religion, with thinking that there's a life after death or an opportunity for redemption later, it kind of lets you off the hook of having to really be accountable today. And what you're saying now doesn't surprise me at all. Um, And I wouldn't have thought that a spiritual life for you would somehow be um, necessarily connected with what happens afterwards or, or later. But what I would suggest is there's something about discovery and effort and vulnerability and focus. And 
self-love and rising up and reaching out and openness that blends in, combines into some kind of larger more dimensional spiritual quality for you. I know that I'm very grateful to have this thing called life. It's just cool. If you just stop a moment and look at a tree and just wonder how did that get there, that is a miracle that I can look at and point to. It's just, it's incredible to be a human on earth right now. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, consultant Bruce Mason, and post-production services provided by Freedom Podcasting. Thanks for listening.